This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Nick DeCastro is the founder and owner of Land Trust. And this is the first of a two-part podcast in which Land Trust and Hunt quietly almost answer questions that they have posed for each other tied to the idea of land access. Hunt Quietly and Land Trust do not quite see eye to eye when it comes to land access, public land hunting. And there's been a little bit of words exchanged between the two organizations. And we decided to essentially play a mediator role in that we asked Hunt Quietly for questions that we can pose objectively and directly to Land Trust. And we asked Land Trust for questions to pose objectively and directly to hunt quietly. So this is the Nick DeCastro Land Trust version of the podcast. And the very next podcast that is dropping, that dropped at the same time, is the Hunt Quietly podcast. So you'd want to listen to both podcasts to get the full spectrum of the discussion and conversation and the answers to their respective questions. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So typically we do a very bad job of introducing people, uh, but we're going to do a good job today because today's a little different of a podcast. It's a dual podcast, uh, a dual podcast between two individuals, um, dare we say two organizations, <laughs> that um, have different, see things differently. So first up in, in the podcast series, Nick DeCastro, CEO, founder of Landtrust. Nick, welcome. Appreciate you having me on again, Robbie. No worries, no worries. Uh, so, as I alluded to in the email, uh, and for the audience edification, um, there seems to be a little bit of, you know, just differing of opinions. I'm going to call it that between Land Trust and Matt Ranella's new hunt quietly. And uh, Matt has said a lot of things about Land Trust, um, and so what we decided was essentially to act like a mediator. And to say, okay, Matt, 
you have issues with Land Trust, what are your questions that you would like Land Trust to answer? And the same thing we did with you. We said, Nick, what questions do you have of Hunt Quietly that we can get Hunt Quietly to answer around this issue of primarily access? So the way that today is going to operate is we're going to give a general intro. And Nick, I'm going to let you sort of sort of set the stage. And then we're just going to work through the questions verbatim that Hunt Quietly produced and created for you, Nick. And we're just going to let you answer them. Uh, we don't really have an opinion one way or another. We're just, we, we like, and we'll say this on Matt's podcast, we like to public land hunt. We also like to have access to private land. And we have said this on many occasions. A lot of people have slid into our DMs and they've slid into our Instagram. And so I'll say it on this podcast and I'll say it again on Matt's podcast. You know, if, and there's a couple of questions in these, in these packets that, you know, if land trust is actively going after specifically landowners that are in public access programs, that's not a good thing from our perspective. Number two, based on the information that we've received from you, that's not the case. Number three, we want, you know, we want the best of both worlds and we feel like there is the best of both worlds out there. So, Nick DeCastro, set the stage for us, please. So, again, appreciate having me on for a second time. I think we did this a few months ago, maybe last summer. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, where we were able to uh, have a good conversation. So, yeah, I'm Nick. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Land Trust. We're based here at Bozeman, Montana. And uh, Land Trust is a land sharing marketplace. A lot of your listeners may have used home sharing marketplaces like Airbnb or VRBO. Maybe they've rented cars on Turo, which is a car sharing marketplace. So, those are all two sided marketplaces where on the supply side, you have someone who owns an asset and doesn't use it all the time and, you know, wants to generate some income from it by letting other people utilize it when they're not. Uh, we're, we're a land sharing marketplace. And so what that means is we have landowners who are today primarily production agriculture landowners. So these are people who farm and range for a living, produce all of our food, fuel, and fiber. Um, and they obviously have this immense asset that sits underneath their feet and that they steward and have stewarded often for many generations. And uh, there's a lot of people on the, you know, the demand side, let's call them hunters, fishermen, RVers, foragers, bird watchers, whatever, um, who obviously place a lot of value on having access to, you know, quality land to have quality outdoor experiences based on their passions. And so, you know, that's, if you go to landtrust.com, we look and feel a lot like these other marketplaces that I mentioned. Um, so it's kind of a modern experience and you can, you know, browse properties and opportunities by state and you know if it's hunting it's by species or or whatnot so and then you connect directly with landowners and you can talk to them and you know basically get your trips booked and go have new experiences in states that you probably wouldn't have been able to go hunt uh prior because making those connections is really difficult perfect perfect so we're going to get into the questions that hunt quietly provided and right out of the gate um we're going to probably tackle, as I understand it, the biggest issue that Hunt Quietly has with land trust. And so sure. uh, the, the question is this, you know, one of the primary concerns regarding companies like land trust is their competition with public programs that enable access on private land. So the question is, have you ever targeted landowners enrolled in public access programs as potential enrollees, they say potential partners, as enrollees in land trust? So, yeah, that's a good question. It comes up a lot. The answer is yes, although not as an intentional strategy. So, you know, look, we are a business. We use marketing and advertising, social media, you know, um, Google, uh, direct mail, a lot of these things. Um, we work with big partners who have large audiences. And so, you know, it would be disingenuous to say we've never shown an ad to someone who might be enrolled into block management. Now, the major differentiating point here is we never do that intentionally. So we're not like, hey, what's the list of people enrolled in Montana's block management program? And let's go talk to those people. Think about that from a, a business perspective. So when landers work with 
state-funded access programs, which are pay-to-play too. It's just who's the you know who is paying is different. One is the government, one is the actual user. Um, they're signing annual contracts with the government, and so you know from a business's perspective, it would be kind of a dumb strategy to go and target you know landowners who are locked into annualized contracts um, when we could go talk to uh, landowners who are not locked in any sort of contract and could say yes to us today. So from a pure business perspective, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to try and go target block management or other state funded landowners purely from like a sales cycle perspective. Um, and look, I also want to be very clear. Block management is great. You know, walk-in hunting access in Kansas, all these like state, you know, state pay to play uh, programs are great. I shot my antelope doe this year on a block management property in Montana. So now, I think at the outset, I know I, we probably talked about this in the last time I was on your podcast, but we love public land. We mm-hmm. like private land. We're staunchly pro-private land ownership and landowner rights. And we have to be just as excited for a landowner choosing to enroll in block as they would be to enroll in land trust because we believe that that's their right to yep. choose. Um, so, no, we, we definitely don't go and say, let's go find out who's in block and try to pitch them to come into land trust. Um, do you have have we have have we, yeah, go ahead yeah let me I know a very maybe a sp- more specific question to that question and this is not in their list of questions um do you have current landowners enrolled in land trusts that were block management people so it's a good question uh we have three landowners who at one point in history had been in block management and who had unenrolled from block management before land trust existed. So they enrolled in, in block management and then left the program after their experience with block management before they ever heard about or had ever spoken to land trust and often cases before land trust was a company. Why did those three so, landowners leave block management? That's a good question too. So uh, one of them had enrolled in block for antelope hunting and you know, after I think a season or two, I can't remember offhand how many seasons he was in, but he, he his experience was sub suboptimal, let's say. So he had people, you know, shooting and winning antelope, antelope um, shooting over other hunters while they're out trying to collect another antelope, and then he said he'd have a bunch of wounded antelope on his property that he'd have to go and end up, you know, dispatching in some cases because it was so bad, and. You know, that was obviously not an experience that he wanted to continue. We had another who, you know, was in block for all hunting. And then um, it was walk-in. So there was a place you're supposed to park, probably right where the sign-in is, I would imagine. And he had hunters that he was at the gate doing something that day. Hunters driving past him. He's waving his arms and yelling, hey, you know, stop. They drive straight past him. They drive out, shoot a deer out of the truck and turn around and leave. And so, you know, in both cases, uh, and then then the third one just unenrolled for, I I don't know the reasons offhand, but he unenrolled to then outfit his property himself. And then he came to land trust. So I'd also like to call out, so there's three. Then it wasn't like land trust knocking on the door saying, hey, you should switch from block management to land trust. I think in most cases, we didn't exist as a company when they did this. They left block management because of the experiences they had with block management. And then they heard about land trust at some later time and have, you know, have now started working with us. So that's three landowners total. Okay. I'd also like to call out, we have a landowner who has been with us since almost the beginning. We launched in October of 19. And so, um, you know, they, they joined our platform, I think in January. So very, very soon after we started. They list hunting on block and they list other activities with us. And we've never once pressured them in any way, shape, or form. They said, hey, look, we like to do block and, you know, kids can come out and all that. And so that's awesome. They happen to have a cool little cabin that's on their place. It gives, you know, people can come there. They can, you know, rent the cabin and go hunting um, or they can, you know, go horseback riding or shooting gophers or whatever else. And we have actually a couple of landowners who list some hunting on block and they do other stuff with us too. So these aren't like mutually exclusive things either. <laughs> so the next question would you commit to not engaging with landowners involved in public access programs until they have voluntarily decided to unenroll on their own 
It's kind of an odd question uh, because. Oh, let me preface this by saying un- they would have to unroll it on their own too. Yeah. Um, let me say this before you answer. I didn't tell from sure. a context perspective. I sent these questions to you 48 hours ago. I also sent these questions yeah. yep. to the same questions to Matt and his team 48 hours ago. So keeping things across the board. Yes. Yep. You're like a uh, you're like a therapist, Robbie. Um, Trying to be, but uh, so uh, again, I feel like it's kind of an odd question because landowners we don't have any control whether they enroll or unenroll or anything they do. Um, the answer is no. We are staunch believers in private property rights. So a landowner, if they happen to hear about us from their friends, their family, neighbors, business partners, social media, whatever, in any channel that they might hear about land trust from the Farm Bureau. Who are we to say we will not engage with you because you happen to currently be in, enrolled in, you know, a public pay-to-play program? Who, who are we to say that? Mm-hmm. So I'm not. I can tell you for a fact we don't go out and like pitch block management landowners. Mm-hmm. That's it's a waste of our time, frankly. Uh, we can get to why, other than the fact that they're enrolled in annualized contracts, but also because they see an incredible amount of traffic mm-hmm. and those properties are often degraded from a hunting perspective. So, but. No, landowners can make their own choices. All right. So the next question, I'm going to tie this next question with another question further down because it sort of does the same thing. The question is, how does your financial compensation model for landowners compare to that of the block management program in Montana or other programs in other states? There's another question further down that says, how do you determine how much to charge for access? And how does the type of game present present on that property influence that pricing? I would say though you could answer those two questions sort of the same way. So even in the way the question is worded, it still shows a bit of a lack of understanding of what land trust is. Land trust does not compensate landowners. The government in block management or walk-in hunting access or these other government pay-to-play programs, they compensate the landowner on hunter days. They don't call them, they try to not call them hunter days. They try to call it impact days, but it's hunter days. So land trust is a marketplace and landowners can list their land and opportunities they want to offer for whatever prices they want to offer. They do not get compensated by us. Um, they get compensated by, you know, everyone talks about the ideal of user pay in the outdoors. This is user pay. So they make no money on land trust just by listing. They only make money when someone wants to book their property and does book their property. And that end user who's going to actually use the property for the activity is the one who's paying. Land trust facilitates the marketplace. We take a percentage of that booking and the landowner gets 85% of it. So the the landowner sets the price, regardless of species. So landowners... Landowner sets the price for any activity they offer. And I think it's also important that we do outdoor rec. I mean, we're launching a big RV pilot for the summer here in Montana. So land trust facilitates outdoor recreation on private land. So it could be fishing, could be hunting for morels, shed hunting, hunting, um, RVs, all this stuff. So regardless of what activity is being offered, the landowner always is in control of what they want to offer, when they want to offer it how much they want to offer it for, et cetera. Nick, what, what do you do when a landowner says to you, I have no idea what to charge? Sure. So yeah, we're here to help our landowners. Obviously, we're, we're business partners with landowners. So we only make money when they do. Uh, so it's in our best interest to make sure that they offer things that are attractive, that they're priced attractively, et cetera. The normal market dynamics, right? So we will you know, assess a lot of times in the different markets, we'll have people who are on the ground. We hire landowner success managers um, who go out and visit all the different properties, take pictures, you know, talk with the landowners, et cetera. And well, then if, they, if they're like, hey, we have no idea what we want to charge, we, we can help them and say, hey, look, this is what other folks around you or folks that have similar you know, offerings are charging. We can start there. And if you like it, great. Um, if you, you know, if you, want to charge less or more that's completely up to them but they're always in charge of what uh of what to charge no pun intended okay uh next question has your company or any Mm. of its representatives by the way hold on a second there robbie we missed the second part of that um so you know from a hunting perspective why why is uh a five-day archery elk hunt priced differently than a five-day gopher hunt 
is essentially what the question is coming to, right? Correct. Why are there differences yes, in yes, prices? Yes, 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 yeah. yes. You got that. Sorry, missed that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Hey, want to make sure we're going to shoot this straight here. So uh, there are obvious differences in demand or the ability to access properties to do certain things. So yes, an archery elk hunt in a general unit in Montana is going to be able to command a lot more uh, from a price perspective than you know a gopher hunt <laughs> or a coyote hunt, and that is just that's just market forces at play. And so again, this is not paying for an animal. This is paying for access to to do an activity, and that activity it turns out a lot of other people want to do too. And so it drives price up. So yeah, if you have a if you have a ranch in a general in a general tag unit in Montana, and you're willing to offer you know elk hunting access on it, yeah, you, I mean that's about it's more valuable than having you know prairie dogs or or coyotes. There's still a market for that, but again, it's not paying for an animal. It's not paying for outcomes. It's paying for access to do something on someone's property, mm -hmm. and you're getting that explicit permission, just like a trespass fee. Yeah, essentially like a trespass fee. You're right. Uh, so the, 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 other, the next question, has your company or any of its representatives engaged in any political input over changes to public access programs, question mark, or, and would you ever lobby against changes to public access programs that might make public access more competitive with land trust? So, no, we're a small company. I mean, we don't have lobbyists. We don't. Working with the federal government, I mean, it's kind of goes to the same, uh, you know, thread of the, do we go and pitch block management landowners? Like, like we're a small company. We have to make sure we use our time efficiently and effectively where, you know, as we grow. Working with the government in any way, shape or form is a slow, long, arduous process. We don't have the bandwidth, time, capital or any of that to, to get involved in any of that stuff. So no, we have not been involved in any sort of conversations or lobbying or anything like that because we work with private lands. We're a private lands company. We don't affect public lands. We don't touch public lands. We love them. We love the people that go out and make sure that they're being spoken for. But because we work with private lands, we don't have to worry about lobbying. You know, that it, it, at some point in the future, when you know we grow and grow, and there are op, you know there are opportunities or there are challenges brought against certain things, like I'm not saying we'll never do that, but certainly not anytime soon. We're like 15 people, you know, we're not going to pay some lobbyist or get involved in the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concerns regarding the loss of public hunting grounds and how land trust may be contributing to that? If so, do you have any mitigation tactics in mind? So. Here's a really interesting thing that's it probably should be addressed here. Public hunting grounds. Public hunting access. We say these phrases and it's like, well, we should actually understand and make sure we're using the same language that mean the same thing. Who's in the public? Like, so who do we consider the public? I would say me, you, all Americans, anybody, really. Okay, so let's define this real quick. So I would posit that the public is anyone who is not the landowner, their family, business partners, or has like contractual obligations or relations to the land. So, you know, that's the public to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you're looking at it from a private land parcel perspective, yes. That's right. That's right. Um, I could say it even for the public because we all technically have like a contractual obligation to public lands. So I think it works both ways. But so then what's access? So we say public access a lot. Okay, so if we define the public as anyone who doesn't own that land, isn't family or you know, business partner contractually obligated to that, that property, they're the public. Access, what is access? I would define access as the ability and permission to go onto a property to do an activity. And so now when we say public access, and I'm tying it back to here, um, loss of public hunting grounds. Well, are you talking about public land, like block, you know, not block management, sorry, BLM or, you know, state lands or, you know, federal lands? Like, yeah, we're not. That would be not great. Uh, we don't want to see public lands and the opportunity to hunt on public lands uh, diminish. 
Mm. But public hunting grounds, is that what they're saying? I could see it as I could see public hunting grounds being in my definition, public hunting grounds would be the, the land that dare I say I own as an American citizen that is quote unquote sure. public, right? Those are public hunting yep. grounds that I can if I had all the licenses yeah, and land. tags, public right. land, public right. hunting grounds kind of scenario. So public land access to me would be those lands, number one. Right. But there would also right. be anybody else who then allowed me onto their property. So on the first, on the former public lands, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're seeing some stuff right now where there's certain public lands that there, uh, there's legislation to maybe not allow hunting on. So that's that would worry us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's public land should be multi-use mm-hmm. and hunting should absolutely be one of those uses. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's concerning to us. Mm-hmm. Um, now. When you get into private land that allow hunting, um, I don't know. It's their decision to allow or disallow it. So allowing the public onto their land. By the way, we facilitate public access to private land for hunting. Again, just being really careful with our words and, and being concise with our language. I am part of the public. When, when I book something on land trust, I am not that landowner's family. I don't have any relation to that land, you know, in any way, shape, or form. I am the public, and I'm getting access to that land to go hunting. So, But you can only have access facilitate. to that land, Nick, if you pay something. That's true. And so I, if I, for instance, if I came, and I'll use me as an example, if I came to Cody, sure. Wyoming, which I've yep. been to before, loved it, and I drove out of town, and I came to a place in the road. The place in the road had BLM land on the left-hand side, and it had land trust, as you're defining, publicly accessible land on the right-hand side. I would still only be allowed on the left-hand side, not on the right-hand side, for free on the left, to pay on the right. So both are public access. One is free and one is paid. And if you want to get abstract, technically, yeah. Federal government, I mean, we pay taxes and stuff like that. It's a very abstract uh, concept, and I don't know that taxes actually fund anything anymore. We seem to print a lot of money. But, uh, yeah, so we facilitate public access, obviously, for pay uh, to private land. And we don't affect or contribute to the loss of public land hunting access. Full stop. Even if a block management individual said, I can make more money on land trust. And so I'm switching to land trust. That is private land and a private landowner making a decision for themselves. And they're still allowing public access in a controlled manner. Fair enough. The, I've tackled that question. Uh, we've tackled the next one, I believe, if you want to handle it again, but just so that I'm, I'm, I'm staying true. If a property with only small game is X percent cheaper than a property with elk on it, would you agree land trust business models placing an economic value on game? I think you've answered that already. Yeah, no. It's about access and the desire for access to do different activities. Uh, so I think it's, by the way, um, block management is interesting, right? Uh, again. Love block management. Block management is another opportunity for lenders to get paid for access for hunting. The government pays them, um, but it's pay to play. Um, I don't know if you saw, we had some legislation that just went through that increased the cap of earnings um, for landowners in block management. What does that mean? So with the government program, they basically they pay, they get paid $13 per hunter day. Um, so you sign in in a block management property and it's, you know, every time a hunter signs in, it's 13 bucks, essentially. Um, and they're your cap, basically, at what a landowner can earn at $25,000 a year. Through block management? Through block correct. Okay. So last year, only 22 landowners in all of Montana earned it. Um, and the average is about $5,800 in earnings. The thing is with 
government-funded pay-to-play access for hunting, like block management. The landowner has no control, essentially. They have, they have a few things they can opt in and out of from a type 1 to type 2. Um, and to earn that 25K max, think about how many hunter days that is on that property at $13 per hunter day. I think it's uh you know 1900 to 2000 hunter days on a property in a hunting season. Is that a, is that a win for habitat on that property? That's that, that's that, assuming the landowner wants to maximize his revenue, right? Well, I'm I'm referencing the 22 landowners who actually hit the cap last year. Oh, so there were 22 landowners that did hit the 25,000. That did hit the cap. Okay. Yes. So, here's the fundamental thing. So the government is facilitating these programs to facilitate access, which is great. Uh, you know, again, we're for hunting access, which is why I started the company. We operate in hunting access in a, other, in a different part of the spectrum. So we're for hunting access on private lands and private land is getting paid for. We do that. But the government's incentive is on access. And so what is kind of the dirty little secret, I think, of hunting generally is, um, you know, the slogan, hunting is conservation. It's kind of a trope, and often access and conservation are completely at odds with each other. Maybe you take block management, mm. for example. Now, I think they just—I think they might have just doubled. Uh, I, don't quote me on this, but I think they just doubled the potential max earnings, which doesn't make any sense because it's not like every—if every landowner had in block management had reached the cap, then yeah, okay, increasing the cap would make sure that you know more people get paid and. There's more funds, but only a tiny percentage of all the block management landowners actually hit the cap. They didn't increase the dollars per hunter day, which would have actually affected the majority of landowners. But do you think a property that's seen a thousand, two thousand hunter days in a single season? Do you think that property? You think it's a win for the habitat and wildlife on that property? No, I don't. I would think, say no. No, I don't think it is. Uh, but what it, it's demonstrating to me is the need for 44 people in block management. So maybe the question is, why are there not more people in block management? Well, uh, the 22 number is the people that hit the max. There's, there's, there's I don't know, a thousand. There's, there's quite a few landowners in block. Oh, okay. It's the 22 people hit the max. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, they hit the max earnings. But probably because the they're very popular is, sites, popular walking areas i would bet i would bet they're close to bozeman or other places okay. you know larger um you know metropolitan areas if you want to call them that but the fundamental piece here is the state is is compensating on access which i understand why they're doing it and that's great but what lantris is doing is giving the landers control the landers who live on that land who have lived there for their whole lives and often generations who have seen the wildlife and the habitat and who understand what that property can actually sustain from hunting pressure perspective. And instead of just the incentive, I mean, explicitly with a block management program is to run as many hunters through a property as possible to earn as much money as you can. And it's the exact opposite with land trust, because with land trust, it's controlled, and you want as a landowner to deliver a quality experience for your guests who are paying money for it. And so, you know, this is another one of those myths that we see like, oh, landers are just going to run people through it. Well, that would be pretty dumb because maybe you'll make money this year, but then you won't have any good hunting access next year or the year after or the year after. <laughs> and guess what? On land trust, the sportsmen get to rate the, the experience afterwards. So you'd probably make it two bad ratings and then people would stop booking you. <laughs> so land trust is focused on quality hunting access, not just as much access as possible. I don't want to go hunt on a block management property that's had 2,000 other hunters on it this season. Why? I mean, what, unless I want to just go for a walk. And I think, you know, quality experiences is something that I've heard the Hunt Quietly guys talk about. And to me, it's like there, there's like this tension or there's that, there, that seems to be very at odds with touting block as this perfect program that landowners should be in. Thank you. Because it really is just about running, if you look at pure economics, it's just about running as many possible people through that property as humanly possible until you get your cap. Hmm. Uh, next question. 
Do you believe Land Trust's business model is in alignment with the seven core principles of the North American Wildlife Model? And they went through uh, the the seven tenants in the document, but they bolded the tenant, which is opportunity for all, which means that every citizen has the freedom to view, hunt, fish, regardless of social or economic status. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is an interesting question. So. Uh, some of the tenants aren't necessarily directly related, and they obviously bolded it. I think, you know, one thing we hear a lot is wildlife resources are public trust to be managed by governments for the benefit of all citizens. Absolutely. Does land trust fit inside of that? Absolutely. The state still issue all the tags and licenses, set all the seasons for hunting. Anyone who books on land trust has to be fully legally licensed with all the applicable tags uh, to go hunting during a regulated season. So it's not like land trust is operating outside of, you know, the state fish and wildlife departments and seasons and all this stuff. So absolutely fit inside of that. The opportunity for all that every citizen has the freedom to view, hunt, and fish, regardless of social or economic status. I want to be very clear. Land trust removes no one's freedom or ability to view, hunt, or fish. To me, when I read this, it sounds more like this point is trying to address the potential for laws that would prohibit certain groups of people mm -hmm. from hunting or fishing, mm -hmm. rather than dealing with private land access for hunting or fishing. Mm -hmm. Again, Lanchester does not like put up a toll booth in front of public lands and say, you have to pay or you can't go hunting. If we did that, man, you have a big leg to stand on and that would be bad. We would be against that. But we're talking about private lands that you don't have access to. So, you know, yeah, it seems like more of a discriminatory, right? Discriminatory, racial, right, like if you know, right. um, gender, that kind of like yeah, everyone. Or, it's it's a freedom for every person in the U.S., regardless of race, religion, and gender. Correct. I think that's more of the spirit of that point. I do not think they're talking about, you know, you your right to hunt supersedes property rights. Um, you know, I, that's. I, I, that's my perspective. I, I very much agree. This is like, hey, you can't say you're black, so you can't go hunting. I think that's what this point is talking about. Or you're a woman, you can't go hunting. Or, you know, discriminating from that perspective. I believe that's what this point is talking about when I read it. I certainly don't believe that, you know, the North American model saying your freedom to hunt supersedes people's property rights. That's a right to roam argument, and uh, mm -hmm. we, will, we will never touch that mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. um, all right, uh, last question. Uh, it's a long one, so I apologize. Um, the, the question's short, but the preamble is long. Uh, the sure. hunting community largely agrees that the economic motivations behind hunting for markets, aka market hunting, were antithetical to wildlife conservation. I, I assume that is tied to you know bison and all the antelope species declining back in the 1800s. It's my opinion that companies like Land Trust, along with others in the private outfitting community, are creating markets for hunting that are amplifying the effect of economic dynamics on the hunting community today in a different way than hunting for markets, but that the impacts are largely negative. Do you disagree with this, and if so, why? Well, of course. It's all conjecture, first of all. I mean... Uh... I think, look, you work in this industry. Uh, this is like esoteric stuff here. Mm -hmm. This is very inside baseball. Like, hunting community largely agrees the economic motivations behind hunting for markets were antithetical to wildlife conservation. I bet you nine out of 10 hunters in the United States have never thought that thought, first of all. So I know that sounds crazy to us who are involved in this community from a conservation perspective or, you know, otherwise, most hunters don't have these thoughts. I, I promise you. So it's, a, it's conjecture to say that that's what everyone believes. So yeah, I disagree with that. Uh, I would also say, you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had here about uh, regulated market hunting. Uh, you could look at cases like alligator hunting in, for the markets in Florida. You could look at lionfish. You could look at fish shares. Uh, so actually, market 
hunting or fishing, which I basically say the same thing. They're both, you know, wildlife have absolutely been able to been done in a way that absolutely aligns with conservation. So to just say it's all like, I disagree with that. And I think there's very solid case studies to point to. So, you know, I think people that are participating in a market and they don't have the ability to participate in the high end of the market, um, you know, that, that is basically everything. Like, hey, if I'm going to go on a trip, can I fly first class or do I have to fly coach? Can I stay at the St. Regis or do I have to sleep in a, you know, um, you know, my friend's couch? Mm. You know, so there's lodging and travel in every other market. So I, let's not mince words. Hunting is a market. Mm -hmm. There's a market cap. It's 24 to $30 billion a year of dollars generated by hunting as an activity in the United States. So to like close our eyes and stick our fingers in our ears and say, la, 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 it's not a market. It is a market. It is. So that we didn't invent that, by the way, in no way, shape or form. So there's a lot of companies out there. So to pretend and feign ignorance that hunting isn't a market is to me a little bit ridiculous. And just like every other market, uh, there are going to be higher end experiences that cost more. And there are going to be cheaper ones that cost less. And unlike a lot of other markets, hunting actually has completely free options, which is public land, which is awesome. So, you know, shoot. Uh, there's a lot of activities that I want to go do personally. I want to go, you know, fish GTs in the Seychelles. Uh, you know, I want to go do these things. That's a lot more expensive than fishing largemouth bass in a pond down the street. So I can do some of these things and I can't do some of these other things yet. And to me, like making, you know, making pretend that hunting isn't already a market is disingenuous. And I, I, I think that the money that is derived from people who go and legally hunt, they buy tags, especially out of state, non-residents pay for all the fun. Um, you know, it's for people who love block, which we love block too. Guess who pays for all the block? It's the non-residents. So, you know, like the government is participating in the market for hunting too. Eh. They're the ones selling you the tickets that you get to go. And that funds things. And so, you know, again, I just really wholeheartedly disagree with this idea that hunting isn't a market, nor should it ever be, nor has it been. Only back in the early 19th century and 20, early 20th century was it markets where people were killing things and selling them into it. Yeah. There were some, you know, there were some bad events that happened when it was unregulated market-based hunting in the late 19th century, early 20th century. That's not where we are today. Nick, one question for clarification on my end. Would I have to pay to get into a block management area to hunt? I, I, don't, think, I don't think I do. No, no, you don't. So okay. the your, your non-resident hunter fees largely fund block management. So when non-residents apply and get tags and pay 10 times more than residents do, um, that's what helps pay, fill those those funds for block management programs. Pays the landowner that $13 a day hunter access fee. That's right. Okay. That's right. So there's no more questions from Hunt Quietly. Um, I do have one question. It's a very general question. I'm going to pose it to you, and I'm going to pose it the same way to Matt and David. Um, yeah. And here it is. Is the pay-to-play model good or bad for wildlife conservation? Good question. Um, I would say it's great for wildlife conservation. Here is the reality that we live in. Land is always going to try and find its highest economic use. So right now we're losing, I can't remember the number of thousands. Let's call it single digit thousands of acres of agricultural land every minute in the U.S. So why is it being lost? Why are we losing it to development? Because, I mean, frankly, production agriculture doesn't make a lot of money. And eventually, can't pay taxes, can't pay the note, whatever it is. And you sell. And once that land is developed, it will never be undeveloped. I, don't, I, I personally have never seen a subdivision 
or a Dollar General or a strip mall or whatever get turned back into habitat. Yeah. And so by placing profit, yes, I said profit, on top of having quality habitat and wildlife populations, you will ensure that you have it moving forward. And so what we want to do is make sure that private lands that are well stewarded, that have that provide excellent habitat for high quality, you know, wildlife populations, profit from that. And it's I've worked with some of the folks from the University of Nebraska, their College of Ag Science and Natural Resources, and a lot of them some of them were born in Africa in different countries and some did their PhDs there. And they said, Nick, this is not new. Look at Africa. The countries who have placed profit on quality habitat and wildlife populations have it still. And whether that profit comes from people photo photographing it for safaris or hunting it, that's what ensures that it continues to exist. The countries who remove that profit incentive now don't really have much wildlife or habitat. And so I know that a lot of people's hair will be set on fire when you say the word profit in the same sentence as habitat and wildlife in the U.S. But let's just be frank here. Land is always going to go and try to find the highest, you know, the highest marginal utility for it. And so I would like to see that the landowners who are stewarding land not only growing our food, fuel, and fiber, like our farmers and ranchers do, but are stewarding quality habitat are rewarded for that and incentivized to continue. And I'll give you an anecdote. You know, most ranchers and farmers, like let's take turkeys. You, when we first go and talk to them and they say they have turkeys, you're like, wow, that's awesome. Like we have a ton of people who love turkey hunting like rapidly. And they always look at you sideways like, are you serious? Like you could shoot all of these. I don't care. And then they list with land trust and they generate a few thousand bucks, maybe the first season from a handful of turkey hunters coming out and having a great time. We have already had multiple landers come to us and say, can we get introduced to NWTF? Like, how do we make better turkey habitat? <laughs> and why is that? Because it's, you know, they're bleeding hearts and they love turkeys and that's what, the only thing they care about and think about? No. Because now it's another opportunity that hunting access for turkeys is generating income for their operation. This is just normal market economics. <laughs> so this is what I'm saying. By placing profit on that quality habitat and healthy wildlife populations, by the way, who are not high fenced in, you know, these, these animals move freely across. There's a herd of elk that live on Ted Turner's that people on public land next to Ted Turner's get to shoot every single year. But Ted pays a lot of money to maintain that habitat, that environment, pay the taxes on that. And so, you know, I'm glad that properties like that exist because they provide habitat for a lot of wildlife that ends up on public lands a lot of the year, too. <laughs> so to me, it's not is it good or bad. It's great. <laughs> and the lower 48 is 70% private. So if you can't figure out a model that incentivizes access and quality habitat for wildlife, we're missing the boat here. Yeah, I would say thinking sort of sitting in the middle I get because of where I come from I come from that African model yeah and that African model is a pay to play model that has zero truly zero public land access right right and I see I understand the hunt quietly's position which is the, the position that is we are going to lose access. And that's something that I cherish because it's a thing that is amazing about this country. Of course. But the public land system, I, and again, I don't have the data, and I, I may ask the hunt quietly, guys, what is the percentage of land that is publicly available in Montana to the percentage that is publicly accessible through block management. I don't know what that percentage is. I wonder if it's like yeah, I don't know 90, either. 10, 80, 20. I don't know. I, don't, I doubt it's 50-50. No, no way. No. Um, and so to me, 
I get the fight for whatever that percentage is, but we, I don't think, I, I, I see that, I see their, I see their case. I see their case for that pay to play is reducing access. But I don't think it'll go to the extreme of what South Africa is because of the, the phenomenal public land BLM forest Earth. service, whatever that you have here in the United States. But I also understand, you know, the, the concern of people that are in block management that you can get access to their property and them saying, I'm done and I want to make a little bit more profit and I'm going to come over to land trust. Well, it's not just that. It's, I have been, my land has been mistreated. That is why, I mean, unanimously, the only people that we've encountered who have left and then have come to us who've left on their own accord because of poor behavior. And I will extend an olive branch. I think, you know, one of Matt's tenants is encouraging good behavior on land that you have access to. We wholeheartedly agree with that. Regardless if you pay for it or you get it for free through a, a government program or whatever else, or someone just you knock on a door and someone lets you on their land, treat it as if it was your own and be respectful because bad behavior on private land will always reduce access. Whether it's someone pulling out a block, someone delisting from a, a, someone like, you know, a platform like ours. Hey, if we had bad behavior happening, landowners would not list with us. They would remove that. So, unfortunately, I think some people, when they do have access to somebody else's land, they don't treat it as if it were their own. And that's a bad thing. So, you know, we definitely can agree on good behavior, good etiquette, when you do get the opportunity, whether it be knocking on someone's door and they let you out, or through block, or through land trust, to behave Treat it well. Treat it with respect. 100%. 100%. Nick DeCastro, thank you. I appreciate you uh, giving your point of view. And uh, I know that uh, you've sort of hopefully cleared up a lot of the uh, maybe myths that are out there. Um, and appreciate you answering, answering the questions that were posed to you. I appreciate you having me on. And I think it's good to do stuff like this and um, hearing both sides. Podcasts are great formats because you can have a long-form conversation and not just a soundbite. So I, I look forward to uh, listening to the, the other one that you're going to record today. And again, uh, from, a, from a extending the olive branch, I think there are things that we can agree on with, with Matt and his movement. And then there are things that we're going to disagree on. And to me, that's okay. Uh, you know, agreeing on everything is not a really a goal. And I think there's going to be a spectrum of access that continues hunting. You know, like there's from the totally free federal public lands to government programs like Block to what we facilitate. All of them are needed. It's not one of them is going to be the only solution. Mm -hmm. I promise you that. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.